好。Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Karen Kay, recovered compulsive eater from Syracuse, New York, and my credit stone transfer. It is Saturday, June 19th, 2021. We are picking up on the big book where Harlan G. left off on uh, To the Wives, and Harlan will give us the page number. And without every, any ado, I'd like to welcome Harlan. Thank you, Harlan. Thanks, Karen, and thanks for your service, and thanks to everybody who makes this possible. You may see me and hear me, but there are lots and lots and lots of people who make this possible, and they also make it accessible through the recordings uh, that you can access. If you are listening to me now, that's fine, but a lot of people do plug into the recordings at different times. Uh, I think it's very interesting that... Um, we have been talking about four types of drinkers and we've been studying in the chapter to wives. And as I was coming home yesterday, I was listening to somebody on the radio talking about slavery. And I was listening to the person and there's been a national holiday and a state holiday established today uh, to celebrate the notification of the slaves that they were no longer slaves. And I was thinking, how can I tie this in? And it was very, very simple. I believe that what my mother used to say to me is true, that as a compulsive overeater, she used to say to me, she never heard the word compulsive overeater. So she obviously couldn't use that terminology. She didn't know it. But she would say to me from the time I was probably two years old, she would say, Harlan, you're a slave to the food. You're a slave to the food. And I was thinking back on my days as a, and I'm not comparing this to, you know, involuntary servitude. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not equating one to the other. You know, I'm not. But this is a form of a slavery for me to the food. And it was just something that became so apparent to me. So uh, I just wanted to tie that in for just a second here. But anyway, we have been talking about the four types of drinkers. And then there's the heavy drinker. And then there's the three other types of drinkers of which all of the three are alcoholics, but the fourth is not. And so we have a situation now on page 110, we're going to examine, we're going to examine some of the things that are inherently true about all of these drinkers, all of these addicts. And if there's anything that I believe to in my heart, now there's no literature that bears this out. You don't have to contact me and ask me what page this is on. It's not in here. You don't have to ask me where I read it. I didn't. I came to this conclusion uh, on my own through observation. And this is the conclusion that I've come to. I believe that compulsive overeating is a spectrum disorder. And what did I mean by a spectrum disorder? What I mean is it affects us a little differently at depth. Now, all of us who are compulsive overeaters, every single one of us who are compulsive overeaters has the mental twist accompanied by the mental blank spot, the built-in forgetter. And once the food is inside of us, we have that physical allergy, which makes it impossible to stop once we have started. But it is my belief that it is a spectrum disorder. And that's why you have four types of drinkers that are examined. Uh, and three of the types of drinkers are alcoholics. They just have different depths. They have different uh, uh, levels of compulsive overeating. We are all compulsive overeaters. Some of us, if OA went away today and we never could go to another meeting, never could work another step, never could contact each other or a sponsor, some of us would be dead within six months. 
others would gain a little weight or lose a little weight, but their lives would go on and they'd be in a lot of pain, but they'd be able to live. And some of us are in the middle of those extremes. So I hope that explains what I believe that it is a spectrum disorder. I also believe that anorexia and bulimia are very much compulsive overeating and very much compulsive overeating disorders, but they too, in my observation, are a spectrum disorder. Some of the people that I knew from years and years ago that are anorexic and bulimic are dead. And some of the people that I knew that are anorexic and bulimic from years ago are not dead. So I believe this. All right, let's go to page 110. And again, this is just my observation that it is a spectrum disorder. There is nothing printed that would tell me that this is indeed a medical or scientific fact. It's just what I have observed. And the reason I bring it out now is we're now going to examine different depths of alcoholism. And there was a question this week, before we begin, I want to share on this. There was a question this week on Vision for You, and many of you listen to a Vision for You meetings. And the, the question was something about the recovery rates. And this is, you know, this is something that has come up from time to time, because it says on page XX, uh, that of 100 people that came into AA, uh, uh, 50 of them got sober at once. And the other 50, 25 of them got sober. And the other 25 showed improvement, which gives us a 75% recovery rate. Now, the reason that they were able to recover at such a high rate, one of the reasons is because they were all extremely low bottom. These were guys that were really, really afflicted and affected by this disease. And, you know, that's a part of it. That's definitely a part of it. Obviously, in AA, they have some factors that we don't have in OA. They have court mandated. They have people that by the process, maybe they're getting divorced. Maybe they're in a custody fight for children. And the judge has ordered them to go to 90 meetings in 90 days or so on. But a lot of those people really don't want to be there. A lot of those people really don't want to be there. And when I came into OA in 1979, we used to have very, very big meetings in Chicago. I attended a meeting at Swedish Covenant Hospital uh, that was 200, 250 people Every week on Monday night, we had uh, story night. Monday night was story night. And that's one of the things that inculcated me with Monday night being story night. And that's how we ended up with it at our meetings uh, online for, that you know emanated out of Scottsdale on this, on this very Zoom channel, Monday or Sunday through Thursday uh, on the same bat channel, but it just at a different time. But anyway, we used to go to the Swedish Covenant meetings and there'd be 200, 250 people there. That same meeting today, I don't even know if it exists. And if it does, it's quite small because the treatment centers got their funding pulled out by the insurance companies. And so everything kind of collapsed on OA. Anyway, I don't know where I was going with this, but I'm sure I was going somewhere. But please excuse me. My, my brain is getting a little feeble as I get older. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. Don't kid yourself. But anyway, oh, I know why, where I was, I'll tie it in. We were talking about recovery rates. And there are people in meetings today that they didn't have years ago. They really didn't want to, really don't want to be there. They really don't want to be there, but they're just there to kind of, oh, satisfy a judge or maybe get custody of their children or what have you. And I think that affects it too. But here's the thing I can assure you. No matter what the recovery rate in OA is, is not important. Here's what I can guarantee you. And I can guarantee you this because I had a miracle in my life on Wednesday. On Monday, I took a blood test. And on July 28th, I have a date with the court, uh, the uh, cardiologist. And I also see my nutritionist. I make the appointments the same day because they're in the same building. They're only a couple of uh, doors apart, actually, just on a different floor, but they're in the same building as my, as my cardiologist. So I make both appointments for the same day. Well, in order to go to the cardiology appointment, I always have to have a current blood test because my mother was very diabetic and my dad had cancer. So they watched me like a hawk for diabetes. 
and I, you know, you know my history. I've been 700 pounds. I've been morbidly obese my whole life. And everything came back just beautifully normal. I'm a little low on hemoglobin, but other than that, everything was perfect. And the reason I'm sharing that with you is number one, I, I'm so proud of that. I'm so grateful. Really proud isn't the, isn't the word. That's not the word. I didn't accomplish it. I'm grateful for it. But the reason I'm sharing that with you is no matter what the recovery rate is, 100% of the people that work their butt off in this program will recover. There is nothing standing between me and the recovery that I seek other than my own ego and my own self will run riot. If I follow the steps and I have a sponsor, I actually have a very wonderful sponsor, but if I follow the steps and I do what's in front of me and I live in 10, 11, and 12 every day of my life as if my hair was on fire, as if my life depended on it, I will recover 100% of the time. So I just... Uh, I'm in awe of God's power that I was able to get such a wonderful and a wonderful blood test. And the doctor writes his little notes. This is great. This is fabulous. See you at the end of July. Keep up on your meds. Do what you're doing. I, I remember being screamed at by doctors. Even from the time I was a kid, I have vivid memories of doctors screaming, literally screaming at my mother and screaming at my father or screaming at my mother and father about how fat I was getting and why were they letting me eat so much. I mean, just screaming at my mom and dad. And then they started screaming directly at me and when I was 17 years old, I broke my ankle. I went to Mather High School in Chicago, graduated in 72, and I broke my ankle in, in gym class. And the doctor told my mother, and I've related this here, she, he said to my mother, Virginia, he's 300 pounds and he is 17 years old. He isn't going to live to see 30 and they have been giving me my death sentence for many, many years. And I'm 67 and I'm still alive and I'm able to walk three miles a day, six days a week. And I'm able to walk in the pool for 1000 yards, five days a week. And I'm just so grateful to just be alive. So this is a particularly poignant part of the book for those of us who have struggled. All of us have struggled. Let's face it. Uh, as my, <laughs> nobody comes in here on a winning streak. Nobody came in here because things were going well for them. All right. All that stuff about my life and my opinions aside, and you're free and encouraged to ignore all the things I say that are not verifiable in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. If it's not in this book, you are encouraged to completely ignore it. But I just wanted to share about my blood test just to let anyone who's listening know that if I can recover, my God, you can too. All right, page 110. We're on the bottom paragraph that says, let's now go back to husband number one. This is the guy who gets in trouble with alcohol. He's not an alcoholic, but he's right on that precipice there. Oddly enough, he is often difficult to deal with. Why is he difficult to deal with? He's not accustomed to trying to control his intake of alcohol. Is, of alcohol. And I'll tell you something else. You know, I am 67 years old, as are almost all of my friends from high school. Some are as young as 65, some are as old as 68, but we're right in that same age gap, in that same age group. And what some of them are experiencing is weird for them. They grew up as skinny kids, never worried about what they ate, when they ate, or if they ate. They couldn't care less. Food was as, was as important to them as the weather is in Antarctica. It was nothing that registered on their radar. And then they got older and got older and got older, and all of a sudden their shirts didn't button. 
All of a sudden their pants didn't button. All of a sudden they're buying sizes that they never had to buy in their life. And they looked down and they noticed, oh my God, I've got a gut on me. Why? Because their metabolism is slowing down. They're getting older. They're not able to burn the calories like they were. Their metabolism, the machinery of their metabolism is not what it used to be. And so they find that they're gaining weight and they are, are just as obnoxious, some of them as they can be, because they don't want to be told what to eat and what not to eat or when, but this is what they've had to do. And some have done it very successfully and some of them have not. They're not, you know, like, like a compulsive overeater, but they could drop a few pounds. They are often difficult to deal with. He enjoys drinking. Some of my friends enjoy eating. To some of my friends, particularly I've noticed the ones that are retired, they enjoy going going to all these restaurants. And when they come here to Arizona, they want to take me to all these places, these restaurants that I've I, I would never walk into in a million years if they weren't here. I just don't go to those places, but they want to go to places where there's 50 this and appetizers and all kinds of stuff. And dinner is like the national debt. And I don't go to those places. I can't go to those. I don't choose to go to those places. It stirs his imagination. His friends feel closer over a highball. Perhaps you enjoy drinking with him yourself when he doesn't go too far. You have passed happy evenings together, chatting and drinking before your fire. Perhaps you both like parties, which would be dull without liquor. We have enjoyed such such evenings ourselves. We have had a good time. We know all about liquor as a social lubricant. Some, but not all of us, think it is it has its advantages when reasonably used. And I think all of us can agree that when reasonably enjoyed, food is a way to bring people together. Food is the way to, you know, I hear this at meetings all the time. I'm a compulsive overeater because I'm Jewish and we use food for love and I'm German and I use, we use food for love and I'm Italian. And what culture doesn't gather around and, and use food kind of as a social lubricant? I can't think of a single culture in my life that doesn't use food as kind of a social gathering place, if you will, a social sort of focal point, if you will. Top of page 111. I hope I'm making sense today. I'm not sure if I'm on drugs that I don't remember taking or my brain is on some kind of hiatus or something, but just bear with me. It's 117 here today, so just bear with me. Okay. The first principle of success is that you should never be angry. Resentment is the number one offender, isn't it? And we should never be angry. Now, am I going to be able to control not being angry? No, I'm not. I'm not going to be able to control that. What am I going to need so that I can not be angry? I'm going to need to be working the steps. So what this is telling me is whether I am the addict, which I am, or I am the person in the orbit of an addict, which I sometimes am, I should never be angry. They might as well have written this instead. They might as well have written the first principle of success is that you should be working the steps. Because if I'm working the steps, I won't find it necessary to be angry. But if I'm not working the steps, then I'm going to attract thoughts into my brain that tell me this person is not sticking to my script. This person is not living their life according to my script. And I am going to get mad, damn it. And I am not happy about this. Okay. Even though your husband becomes unbearable and you have to leave him temporarily, you should go if you can without rancor. And rancor means anger. And what we need to be doing there is working the steps. Patience and good temper are most necessary. And remember always, we forgive and we accept 
not because the other person may deserve to be forgiven or deserve our acceptance. We forgive and we accept because we deserve not to be angry. And with us, if we harbor anger, we are going to eat again. And with us to eat is to die because it's going to trigger the physical allergy. It's going to make it so that we cannot stop. We cannot stop eating once we have started. Page 111, our next thought is that you should never tell him what he must do about his drinking. Very important. And this is the basis of Al-Anon. This is the basis of a lot of that stuff that you see in Al-Anon. If you go to Al-Anon, you know, it's funny. Um, there's a, a person on here that says uh, the credits don't transfer. And this is just wonderful. And I would say once a month, somebody will call up with a question and say, what does that mean? Your credits don't transfer. What it means is a lot of us came in here from another program. Al-Anon, my sponsor calls Al-Anon the great waiting room of OA, but it, whether you come in from Al-Anon or you come in from AA or you come in from whatever it is you come in from, I didn't come in from another program. I am one of those oddities where I came in to OA and that was it. I was 24 years old. It was 1979. And you all heard me tell the story. It was a freezing cold uh, uh, February night. It was February 2nd, 1979. I went to my very first OA meeting, but I had never been to a 12-step meeting before. As a matter of fact, I'll let you in on a secret. There's 126 of us here. So whether you're here or you're listening on a podcast, I didn't really know what a 12-step program was until I was here for a while and I started to look around me and see, but I'd, I'd never been. But if you came in from another program, the work that you have done in those other programs will not transfer. If it was effective, if your fourth step in AA was effective, we wouldn't be having a conversation that you can't stop eating. If your work in Al-Anon was effective at curtailing your desire to use food, we wouldn't know you. So the credits clearly do not transfer. And I just think it's wonderful that someone says it. And I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing because it's a good reminder that the work in OA is the work in OA and there, it doesn't transfer out. Page 111, if he gets the idea that you are a nag or a killjoy, your chance of accomplishing anything useful may be zero. A lot of times it's not what we're saying, it's who's doing the talking. And if I've established myself as a nag or I've established myself as someone who's just on this person all the time, they're gonna kind of shut me out. It really is important to be that program of attraction. And this is something that gets asked all the time. I get phone calls on this all the time. And the phone call goes something like, my son, my nephew, my grandson, my great nephew, my niece, my daughter, my sister, they are compulsive overeaters. They won't come to meetings. What can I do? There's three things you could do. I wish I could turn my computer around because there's a wooden sign that I got in Colorado, a place called Broomfield, Colorado. I got this years ago and it simply says, and I'm gonna read it, it says, recover, recover, and recover. Show that addict, show that person what this program can do for you Show them how you work your program, and that will give us the best chance of ever attracting them into these rooms. He will use that as an excuse to drink more. He will tell you he is misunderstood. This may lead to lonely evenings for you. He may seek someone else to console him, not always another man. Um, <clears throat> I don't have stories about being um, with other people. I don't have that. Um, if some of you do, then you have a little different history than I. I was never that person that kissed another man's wife. I never kissed anybody's girlfriend. I never did anything like that. Um, 
I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know from that part of it. I do know that my wife chose to go in that direction when we, when she was my wife and it was extremely hurtful. It was extremely hurtful. Middle of 111, be determined that your husband's drinking is not going to spoil your relations with your children or your friends. They need your companionship and your help. It is possible to have a full and useful life though your husband continues to drink. In other words, we don't have to stop living our life no matter what anybody is doing. We know women who are unafraid, even happy under these conditions. Do not set your heart on reforming your husband. You may be unable to do so no matter how hard you try. And remember that Bill started really drinking when he became a soldier in the army and he went to a place called Plattsburgh, New York. Plattsburgh is in upstate New York and they were stationed there. And Bill had been warned many times during his life not to drink liquor. His father and his grandfather were alcoholics, and God only knows how far back alcoholism ran in the Wilson family. I mean, God only knows. We know about his dad and his grandpa. We, I mean, there could be, you know, alcoholism all the way back to the first Wilson, you know. Um, but anyway, he had been warned. And then in Plattsburgh, they served the soldiers something called a cordial. And I didn't know what a cordial was. I'm not a drinker. I don't know most of this stuff. I didn't know what a highball was until I came in here. I didn't know what any of that. I knew what beer was. I knew beer and whiskey. I knew what that was. I'm not, I'm not a complete babe in the woods, but I didn't know what a highball was. And I didn't know what a cordial was or anything. He started drinking these things. And this was 1917. He didn't get sober until December 14th. 1934. So for 17 years, his drinking ransacked Lois. And Lois was not happy. Who the Ebby Thatcher, this drunk, this degenerate sot came in and got you sober? I have been hocking you for 17 years to get, and this guy in Akron, who the hell is this doctor in Akron? She didn't, uh, she could not, somebody's unmuted, Karen. Um, she did not in, in a million years understand how in the world did these guys get him, get you sober and I couldn't get you sober. I could not get you sober. She told a story her entire life. They were going to an Oxford group meeting on a Tuesday night. She had worked all day at Bloomingdale's department store down in uh, New York in Manhattan. And they were going to this to the Oxford group meeting and they were living in Brooklyn at the time. And he was dressed already when she came home. He had his tie on, he had his jacket on, he was ready to go, ready to roll. And he says, come on, Lois, we're going to be late. And she, very atypical to her behavior, she took a shoe and threw it at his head. And she says, we're going to be late? You got some nerve, Bill Wilson. She says, I have been trying to get you sober since World War I. And now all of a sudden you're sober. She couldn't figure it out for the life of her. She took her shoe and Lois was a very gentle kind of soul. Uh, I never met her, obviously, but I know people or I've heard people speaking that did meet her. Very gentle kind of soul, very quiet kind of lady. And she took her shoe and she threw it right at his head. Let's continue. We know these suggestions are sometimes difficult to follow, but you will save many a heartbreak if you can succeed in observing them. Your husband may come to appreciate your reasonableness and patience. This may lay the groundwork for a friendly talk about his alcoholic problem. Try to have him bring up the subject himself. Be sure you are not critical during such a discussion. Attempt instead to put yourself in his place. Let him see you want to be helpful rather than critical. Very, very important. And if you look at those last couple of sentences, and you think about how the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written. 
they are trying to be helpful rather than critical. And this goes back to a psychiatrist in New Jersey, in Teaneck, New Jersey. And he, his name was Dr. Howard. And Dr. Howard got an original mimeographed copy of the book. And it was a little different in its, in its position. The book, except for chapter seven, and except for parts of this chapter and the next two, are written in what we call the declarative. What is the declarative? These are the steps we took. These are the things we have found. These are the things out of our experience. In other words, most of it is in the past tense. Okay, the steps are written in the past tense. That's the declarative. Instead of these are the things you need to do, then you need to do this and you need to do that. And Dr. Howard explained to Bill Wilson, an alcoholic is not going to respond to a finger in the face and a lecture. We are, Bill Wilson said at the end of his, uh, toward the end of his life, we are sensitive, immature rebels. We are sensitive, immature rebels. And as such, we are not going to respond very well most of the time to being told what to do. And the, the direction of the book took a turn. And instead of the line that's very famous, very famous. If at this point in the book, you haven't decided you're a compul or an alcoholic, simply reread the book or throw it away, that kind of thing. Bill took all that stuff out of there based on the suggestion of this Dr. Howard from New Jersey. And he was instrumental in changing the world because the book has certainly changed the world and he changed the book. So very, very important. Bill did not want to go back and do the work to make these changes, but he became convinced that it had to be done. It absolutely had to be done. Very bottom of 111, very last sentence. When a discussion does arise, you might suggest he read this book Three most important words on page 112 are in the book. Read this book. Very famous trivia question. What are the first three words on page 112? And the first three words on that page are read this book, or at least the chapter on alcoholism. Why is that chapter on alcoholism so vital to everything we're talking about here? More about alcoholism. We've discussed it. We're going to discuss it a little bit now. I'm going to try to keep this short because I've noticed it's already after 1030, which always surprises me. Every time I check the time, it's always 20 minutes later than I think it's going to be. But anyway, in the chapter more about alcoholism, the chapter comes from a book called The Common Sense of Drinking. And it was written by Richard Peabody. And the common sense of drinking by Peabody, the sad part about this book is Peabody comes all the way up to, to, to an answer, but he never gets there. He feels that the answer to alcoholism is change your habits, change your job, change your environment, move to a different place, whatever. You know, all the stuff that we know just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Well, he points out some things though in that in that book the common sense of drinking and listen that book is so vital to our big book that bill wilson's copy of the common sense of drinking is in the aa archives as we speak and then the common sense of drinking the big book because of what Peabody wrote, describes alcoholism as permanent, progressive, and fatal. It's a permanent condition. He says in there, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. What else does he say? He says that over time, alcoholism will get worse, never better. And in the very first story, a man of 30, he describes a man who was bone dry for 30 years and who within four years after drinking was dead. The disease is progressing whether we are eating or not, whether we are working the steps or not, whether we are in good recovery or we are not. The disease is progressive, permanent, and fatal. I have a friend who lives in Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he loves to say the three Ps. He says it's permanent, 
progressive and pathetal. So uh, permanent, progressive, and pathetal. But anyway, when they're talking about this chapter on alcoholism, it is a pivotal chapter in the description. Did you know that the original working title of that chapter was not more about alcoholism? It was more truth about alcoholism. And the boys made Bill take that word truth out of there. He says, because it makes us sound like we're experts on alcoholism, and we are indeed not. And Bill saw the wisdom of that and took the word out so that the chapter we have is more about alcoholism. But it's a very pivotal chapter because of its description. And if you look at the stories, particularly the Jaywalker, and I have a Jaywalker cartoon, but I just, I can't futz with it right now to get it up there. But anyway, in the Jaywalker, in every sentence of the Jaywalker, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And that illustrates the progressive property, the progressive nature of this disease. Okay, let's continue. We're at the top of 112. Tell him you have been worried, though perhaps needlessly. You think he ought to know the subject better, as everyone should have a clear understanding of the risk he takes if he drinks too much. Show him you have confidence in his power to stop or moderate. Say you do not want to be a wet blanket, that you only want him to take care of his health. Thus, you may succeed in interesting him in alcoholism. You have to be very careful, but again, there's three major things you can do for the person who is still suffering from alcoholism. You can recover, you can recover, and you can recover. Very important that those things are in place before a word is spoken. If you want to get my attention about what you're doing, you want to get my attention why I should uh, stand on my head or whatever, show me what it's doing for you. I'm in the, I'm at the, toward the top of 112. He probably has several alcoholics among his own acquaintances. He might suggest that you both take an interest in them. Drinkers like to help other drinkers. Your husband may be willing to talk to one of them. This is something that calls upon his good Samaritan nature that maybe if in a person getting abstinent, they can help someone else. And this is a very, very, a uh, prophetic situation. I'll tell you a story. It was a Saturday afternoon and I was at a meeting at the Lincoln Park Alano Club in Chicago. The Lincoln Park Alano Club is essentially where AA started right in that area when Earl Treat came back from Akron. That's where the initial meetings of AA started in Chicago, was on the near north side and downtown. And I knew a man and a woman, they were married to each other. And the, the woman, the wife said to me one day, it was, it was a beautiful day in Chicago. She said to me, as we were leaving the meeting, I was getting in my car. She said to me, Harlan, one day, you may not see this now. There's a line between She's Karen, somebody's unmuted. She said, one day you're going to help a lot of compulsive overeaters with your story. You're going to help a lot of people. And at the time, it didn't mean anything to me. But now I kind of think back on it and I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing the best I can. But let's go back to, it's just funny how God gives you these little snippets. He gives you these little dog biscuits, these little, you know, these little uchkis of information here. And you, you sometimes you have to put it together. If this, I'm, on the, I'm in the middle of 112. If this kind of approach does not catch your husband's interest, it may be best to drop the subject. But after a friendly talk, your husband will usually revive the topic himself. This may take patient waiting, but it will be worth it. Meanwhile, you might try to help the wife of another serious drinker. If you act upon these principles, the principles are the steps, your husband may stop or moderate. Suppose, however, that your husband fits the description of number two. Now we're getting into the two, three, and four drinkers. They are alcoholics. They are not people that just get in trouble with alcohol. These guys are alcoholics. 
the same principles which apply to husband number one should be practiced after, but after his next binge, ask him if he would really like to get over drinking for good. Do not ask that he do it for anyone or, or for you or anyone else, just would he like to? And that's a very, very important question. And I know that for me, I did not see life without the food. I could not imagine life without the food. I couldn't live it with the food and I couldn't imagine life without the food. The chances are he would. Show him your copy of this book and tell him what you have found out about alcoholism, chapter three. Show him that as alcoholics, the writers of the book understand. Very, very important. Now, here's a question that a lot of people ask. And I got to admit, I was one of those people that have asked this question. Why didn't Lois Wilson write this chapter? Well, I'll tell you why in a nutshell. Sam Shoemaker was asked by Bill Wilson to write the steps. Sam refused. Bill Wilson wanted Sam to write part of the book. Sam refused. He told Bill Wilson, Bill, this has to be a book for alcoholics by alcoholics. And that's why one of the things that you hear that's not true is that the first 164 pages of the book have never been changed. Not true. The doctor's opinion in the first printing of the first edition was in the main body of the book, chapter one, page one, was the doctor's opinion. Dr. Silkworth is not an alcoholic. If you don't know who Dr. Silkworth was, Dr. Silkworth was the man who wrote the doctor's opinion. And he is our great medical benefactor. Uh, just to be a schmo, sometimes when I go to uh, the cardiologist, every year you have to file new paperwork. And since the cardiologist is not my primary care physician, where it says, who's your primary care physician? I'll sometimes be a nudnik and I'll write down Dr. William D. Silkworth, MD. But anyway, the bottom line is, you probably shouldn't do that. But the bottom line is, is that Dr. Silkworth was not an alcoholic, so they moved it in the, in the second printing. They moved the doctor's opinion into the Roman numeral section, and Bill's story became page number one. There's also another change while we're on the subject. The very first sentence of step 12 used to be having had a spiritual experience as the result of the steps. And that has been changed to having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the change. And they added in appendix number two. So it's important that we know these things. Is it important? I don't know. But if you like to know them, here is that information. Some people like that stuff. Some people don't. Show him that his alcoholic, oh, sorry. If you think he will be shy of the spiritual matter. Oh, no, I lost my, okay. Show him that as alcoholics, the writers of the book understand. Very, very important that the book wasn't written by some guy or gal or combination of people that were not alcoholic. Very important. Tell him some of the interesting stories you have read. If you think he will be shy on, of a spiritual remedy, ask him to look at the chapter on alcoholism, chapter three. Then perhaps he will be interested enough to continue. If he is enthusiastic, your cooperation will mean a great deal. If he is lukewarm or thinks he is not an alcoholic, we suggest you leave him alone. Very, very important instruction. If the person is unwilling to admit that they are an alcoholic, leave them alone. The Yiddish expression of the day, Luzum gain, leave him alone. I have a friend of mine, dear friend of mine. I was the best man at his wedding. He was the best man at my wedding. And we are dear friends and we've been dear friends for 50 years. We love each other very much. He is about 400 pounds. He's barely able to walk. 
He's very wealthy, very successful CPA. He has been a partner in the biggest accounting firms in the world. He has been a top level CPA his entire life. He works a little shtick job now just to keep busy, but he's essentially retired. And he has been all over the world. He's an international accountant and he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. I love him to death. He will tell me that he can't talk. I'll call him. He'll say, no, nah, I'm going for a pizza. No, I'm going for this. I'm going for that. And he'll brag to me. He'll say, every time I call a certain pizzeria up there, he lives in the Bay Area. Every time I call up this pizzeria, they know it's me and they have my pizza ready for me when I get there. And I'm practically in tears because I know how they learned it was him through repetition, through repetition. And it's just a very, very sad story for me because he's going to die. But anytime anybody, whether it's me or someone else, even suggests that he come into this program, he, he's not in denial. He's in belligerent denial. He is in hostile denial about his condition. And he laughs derisively about this program. He thinks it's the most ridiculous thing he's ever seen, but he can't walk. He can't function. He can't, he's, he's, he's not living. He's just, he's, he's living to eat. And it's just, it breaks my heart. What can I do about it? Recover, recover and recover. That's all I can do. And one day I'll get that phone call from his wife. I'll get that phone call and it will break my heart, but he's a ticking time bomb. And if I could do something, I would. There's nothing I can do. I can recover, recover and recover. Just like the guys behind me, Grover, Elmo, Cookie Monster, uh, Grout, Oscar, those, those guys are just, they're just there. They're just right there behind me. Okay. <clears throat> if he is enthusiastic, okay. If he is lukewarm or thinks he is not an alcoholic, we suggest you leave him alone. Avoid urging him to follow our program. The seed has been planted in his mind. He knows that thousands of men, much like himself, have recovered. My friend knows my story. He outweighs me now by 150 pounds or more. He, when we were much younger, I outweighed him by two, 300 pounds or more, 400 pounds. Now he outweighs me by 150, 170 pounds. But don't remind him of this after he has been drinking for he may be angry. Sooner or later, you are likely to find him reading the book once more. Oh, I hope so. Wait until repeated stumbling convinces him he must act for the more you hurry him, the longer his recovery may be delayed. So sometimes we think that by nagging somebody, we're going to help the situation, whereas really the opposite is true. And what we really need to do most of the time is work on ourselves. Now, here's just another little thing that I've experienced in my life. Why do I love focusing in on the condition of others? Why do I look at somebody else and say, oh, that person needs OA. Oh, that person needs to come into program. Oh, that person's in the disease. Why is that such a luxury for me? Because I don't like to look at myself. I would rather hold up the magnifying glass than the mirror. The magnifying glass is so much more fun of a toy than the mirror. I don't want to look at me. And so I can look at the other person. When I'm out of work to do on myself, then I will have the, to the time and I will have the ability to look around and fix anybody that's in my environment. But I've got an incredible amount of work to do on myself and I have a sponsor and a big book and a higher power that point me constantly in the direction of the work that I need to do. So never let the, the other person's situation become a recreation. And when I say a recreation, what I mean is it's a way to while away the hours so I don't have to look at me. And here's the other thing. When someone else's recovery is more important to me than it is to them, I am in the throes of the alanonic condition. I am the sick one. 
I'm trying to judge, condemn, and control another person. So I am in the throes of the Alanonic condition. I need to look at me, hold up my mirror instead of my magnifying glass. Very hard to do, but very necessary. Let's continue. I'm in the middle of 113 for those following along. If you have a number three husband, could you imagine having a conversation? Hi, Betty, how's it going? What kind of husband do you have? I have a number three. Oh, really? I have a number four. Could you just imagine having that conversation with somebody? Or, hi, Fred, how's it going? How's your wife? Oh, she's a number two. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm crazy today. I think the heat's got me, sugar. Okay. You may be in luck. <laughs> sorry. Being certain he wants to stop, you can go to him with this volume as joyfully as though you had struck oil. He may not share your enthusiasm, but he is practically sure to read the book and he may go for the program at once. If he does not, you will probably not have long to wait. Again, you should not crowd him. Let him decide for himself. Cheerfully see him through more sprees. Talk about his condition or this book only when he raises the issue. In some cases, it may be better to let someone outside the family present the book. They can urge action without arousing housing hostility. You know, if my mother would have told my father that today was June 19th, Saturday, he would have checked with someone else. And if my father told my mother that it was June 19th, a Saturday, she would have checked with someone else. So it's not only the information, it's who's doing the talking. My mother had no credibility with my dad and my dad had no credibility with my mother or so it would have seemed from the outside. If my mother told my father who was cold outside, he'd have worn short pants. Anyway, if your husband is otherwise a normal individual, your chances are good at this stage. You would suppose that men in the fourth classification would be quite hopeless but that is not so. Now, I am standing in front of you, but I'm not alone in people that have come from a very low bottom. I was 335 pounds as a senior in high school. By the time I was 12 years old, I had an overhanging stomach. I was physically and emotionally emasculated by this disease. I was deformed. I was derailed. I was defeated by this disease at a very, very early age. Some of you are in that category. Some of you have been morbidly obese. Some of you have been very frighteningly scary, scary thin from anorexia, from restricting, from bulimia. Some of you have come from different sides of the spectrum. You all have your story and none of you is able to say with certainty that you can't recover. All of us can say, yes, we can if we are willing to work the steps, we too can have this most wonderful way of life. Nobody save the dead is underneath the level of being able to recover. While there's life, there's hope. While there's breath in you, there's hope. My father had a lot of friends and a lot of my father's friends came out of the concentration camp. Some did not, some did not, but some did, a lot did. And the, the men and women who I, we knew through him that were in the concentration camps would grab my face and they would smush it together and they would say, live until you die. If you're struggling, if you know somebody that's struggling, if you are somebody that's struggling, there's never a point where you can't recover. Where there's life, there's hope. This is the greatest way of life imaginable. You have no idea if you're just starting, if you're struggling, if you're on that struggle bus, you have no idea what God has in store for you. You have no idea of the miracles that are ahead of you in life. 
Don't condemn yourself. Don't get negative in your thinking. Be open to the possibility of a great life. However old you are, be you eight, be you 80, be you nine, be you 90, grab for the recovery. Don't let anything or anyone stand in your way. Don't let negative thinking bar you from that precious time that you could spend in the sunlight of the spirit. Listen, we're all going to die. Yes, I know we're all going to die. I'm not oblivious to that. But with this way of life, we can go to God at the end of our days, knowing that we have lived the saddest words of tongue or pen are these few words. It might have been, what might have, what might have we done had we had this recovery? Here it is right in front of us. Let's not waste it. I didn't get that fly, but let's not waste it. Let's not waste it. Let's go to this recovery with an open mind and an open heart and an open hand and let's pass from yes, but to yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. Let's continue. Many of Alcoholics Anonymous were like that. Everybody had given them up. Defeat seemed certain, yet often such men had spectacular and powerful recoveries. There are exceptions. Some men have been so impaired by alcohol that they cannot stop. <sighs> Sometimes there are cases where alcoholism is complicated by other disorders. Some of us have, I don't have it, but some have depression or some have anxiety or some have personality disorders or some have whatever they have. We can still recover. We can still do what we need to do. We can still grab God's hand. A good doctor or psychiatrist can tell you whether these complications are serious. Bill Wilson suffered from depression and anxiety his entire life. He recovered. Okay. In any event, try to have your husband read this book. Do you see the theme of read this book? Very, very important. And when the big book wants to tell me something, it tells it to me many times because it spirals the information knowing that repetition is one of the sincerest and most wonderful forms of teaching. His reaction may be one of enthusiasm if he is already committed to an institution, but can convince you and your doctor that he means business. Give him a chance to try our method unless the doctor thinks his mental condition too abnormal or dangerous. We make this recommendation with some confidence. For years, we have been working with alcoholics committed to institutions. Since this book was first published, AA has released thousands of alcoholics from asylums and hospitals of every kind. The majority have never returned. The power of God goes deep. Now, I want to explain that because you're reading in the book that since the book was first published, remember that there were mimeographed copies of the different chapters floating around as far back as 1938. And the book wasn't printed until April 10th of 39. And by the way, if you have a mimeographed copy of one of those chapters and it's an original one, you've probably got about $50,000, $60,000 worth of paper in your hands. You could get about 50, 60 Gs for those, for those uh, mimeographed copies today. The majority of, of never returned the power of God goes deep. You may have the reverse situation on your hands. Perhaps you have a husband who is at large. At large means he's free. He's not incarcerated, but who should be committed. Some men cannot or will not get over alcoholism. When they become too dangerous, we think the kind thing is to lock them up. But of course, a good doctor should always be consulted. The wives and children of such men suffer horribly, but not more than the men themselves. You see, people think that I liked eating all that candy. They thought, oh, you must really like food. You must really be hungry. You must like the way you are or you would change. I hated the way I was. I couldn't change. I couldn't get out of my own way. It took God. It took the 
steps. It took the fellowship to get effect, effect a change within me. But sometimes you must start life anew. We know women who have done it. If such women adopt a spiritual way of life, their road will be smoother. The road to anything will always be smoother if I include God in that journey. If your husband is a drinker, bottom of 114, you probably worry over what other people are thinking and you hate to meet your friends. You draw more and more into yourself and you think everyone is talking about conditions at your home. You avoid the subject of drinking, even with your own parents, top of 115 and then we'll be done. You do not know what to tell the children. When your husband is bad, you become a trembling recluse, wishing the telephone had never been invented. Okay, we're going to stop there for today. But in review, before I turn it over to Karen, I just want to remind you that no alcoholic, no compulsive overeater, save somebody who a doctor has, you know, said is beyond us, is beyond recovery. If I can recover, and many of you whose stories I know, and some of you whose stories I don't know can recover, then I have to think just about anyone can. This program is a life-giving, life-saving program. And if it's practiced, recovery is pretty assured. If you do what's in front of you, you will see that there will be miracles in your life. Before I turn it over to Karen, I just want to remind you that if you asked a question last week, we're going to ask you to hang back and let others ask their questions and no food questions. And for the love of God, no math questions. Any question that starts with find X or if angle A equals angle B will not be considered. Okay. Karen, I'm going to turn it back over to you. And thank you very much, Harlan. Another stellar job again. And I also wanted to thank uh, Kathy M, Sue L, and um, Liz from the UK uh, for their service of being co-host and helping me out in the very beginning. And um, I'm going to stop the recording.